Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy today's show. Before we begin, just a quick word on how you can access the rest of our essential journalism on Foresight Climate and Energy. If you, and maybe some of your colleagues, would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and the rest of Foresight, join our global community by becoming a member. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our new website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightmedia.com to find out more. Hello and welcome to What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy that puts the smart into smart grids. My name is David Weston and joining me as always are Michaela Hall of Agora Energivenda and Jan Rosnow from the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi team, are you well? Yes, all fine. All fine in Brussels, thanks. I'm very well. I just did three three days of walking and uh, come back very relaxed but I must admit, not very prepared for this mm. podcast. So I will be in improvisation mode, but I'm sure that will work just fine. I'm sure it'll be absolutely fine. Yeah, and this week we are once again taking a look at the European electricity market following the latest annual review into the market by climate think tank Ember. In 2023, the EU made significant strides into uh, its transition away from fossil fuels, according to the report, with declines in coal, gas and emissions. Fossil fuel usage plummeted by 19%, hitting an all-time low, and accounting for less than one-third of the EU's electricity generation. Meanwhile, renewables took centre stage, claiming a 44% share, surpassing the 40% milestone for the first time, while wind and solar alone constituted 27% of the EU's electricity generation and achieved their highest annual capacity additions to date. Notably, for the first time ever, wind generation had a greater share than gas. Our guest today to discuss these findings and what it means for the energy transition and how 2024 is shaping up is Sarah Brown, Europe Program Director at Ember Climate. Welcome to the pod, Sarah. Thank you, David, and uh, thank you for having me. Just briefly, Sarah, could we maybe touch on the key findings of Ember's latest review and how does it reflect the progress that we're making in the energy transition? Yeah, well, I think you touched on quite a few there, which uh, is basically we saw records everywhere. Um, so, like you said, record fall in fossil fuels, a uh, record fall in um, power sector emissions across the EU, uh, wind and solar and renewables uh, counting for much larger shares than they ever had in the past, um, and clean power getting to cover two-thirds of total EU generation for 2023. So, yeah, I think the findings of the report were, were yeah, records Records were the key findings everywhere. Was there anything uh, specifically in the report that perhaps surprised you from the last year? Yeah, so we had our report in 2022 that, that you know, that covered the 2022 year. Um, we did a few predictions for 2023. Um, we had a big fall in fossil fuels, but actually we'd seen a, a larger fall in gas generation than in coal. Um, so what we were quite surprised about is that they both fell together and that coal fell more than uh, than gas, which was quite a surprise. So coal fell by 26% and gas by 15%, which is still huge falls. But um, but yeah, it was quite a surprise. And as you mentioned, uh, wind surpassed gas for the first time. And for me, that was uh, v- not only a surprise, but very exciting because wind doesn't always get um, the good news stories that we sometimes hear from other renewables like solar. 
Sarah, we had um, one of your colleagues on the podcast, um, I think about a year ago, um, Dave Johns. And uh, when we were speaking to him, uh, we were just sort of coming out of the energy price crisis, I think. Uh, and we were really looking at how coal had you know, increased, certainly in 2021, I think also in 2022, simply because gas prices were so so high. And then generators um, in the merit order really shifted towards using coal plants more. Um, you know, could you talk us a little bit through you know, how that has changed? You know, was this a, just a blip? So when you look at the trends uh, you know, where, where coal is at, was 2021 and 2022 really an outlier because of the energy crisis? And, and what are you expecting sort of going forward? Just to contextualize this a little bit because we had such an unusual period, didn't we? Yes, exactly. So like you say, um, sort of from mid-2021 to the end of 2022, we saw unprecedented uh, surges in gas prices, um, which sent obviously the cost of gas generation through the roof. Um, we also saw uh, a concerted effort to reduce gas consumption across the EU. And part of that was also to reduce the gas consumption in the power sector. Um, so it was kind of emergency measures that came in in, in 2021 and 2022, particularly for winter 22, 23, um, that saw um, that kind of a, a kind of stalling in shutting power, coal power stations and, and a switch away from gas, um, which was, was very temporary. And we've seen that. We've seen that kind of correction this year. Gas prices have come back down to around the same levels as, as coal. We're still seeing fossil fuel prices higher than when, um, you know, pre-2021. So they're still high, but they have come, they have come down. And therefore, there wasn't such an economic um, pressure to switch from, um, from gas to coal. Um, and if we look at actually the direction of coal over the last, say, well, since 2016, coal generation has been cut in half. So we're seeing that continuation of that structural um, decline. You seemed very upbeat and said records, records, records. Can you put it into perspective, um, your, upwork, your upwards curves that we've seen for wind and solar? How do they compare to the tripling that the EU and other countries committed to at COP, or I think it's a bit less. I think it's two and a halfing for <laughs> what we calculated for what we need for the new renewables ambition after, you know, um, that was adopted and for 2030. I think it was two and a half fold increase. How does it compare to that? Yeah, well, I think for the EU, uh, committing to the tripling of renewables wasn't such a huge step as perhaps for some other nations and regions, um, because with the Repower EU targets uh, that came in in uh, May 2022, there was a big uptick in the targets for wind capacity, solar capacity. So they, they were already there. So that, that tripling was pretty much already in the, in the, in the mix for them. Um, and how we're seeing, what we found in the report, and we do find this most years, is while there were records, again, in the capacity additions for wind and the capacity additions for solar, um, wind in particular, from a capacity installation perspective, is not going at the pace that we need. So say we've got maybe around 240 gigawatts, 230 gigawatts now, um, we need to be at over 500 by 2030. And for solar, that needs to be, um, you know, around 
over 700. So while solar from a capacity addition perspective is doing quite well, there's still a lot of work to be done for wind. Um, so yeah, we're, we're not getting complacent. We, we, we think there's huge strides forwards, but it's certainly not time to say, oh, job's done. Uh, there's still a lot of uh, acceleration needs to be done. Okay. Solar Power Europe always keeps on saying, we can still do more. <laughs> yes, I know. Yes. Uh, they have very, yeah, they have really ambitious uh, targets. But what's nice from the solar perspective is from the data from 2023 and the additions we got in 2023, it looks like it's definitely on target to hit or even surpass the Repower tar EU targets for 2025. So, you know, really good news from that perspective. And what's the issue with wind, Sarah, from your um, point of view? You know, we, we also hearing that the next auction, I think, for the UK offshore wind auction, that might be tricky, even though they raised the auction, uh, the, the maximum price uh, quite, quite a bit. Uh, and now you're saying we're seeing sort of similar issues in Europe where solar is really doing very, very well, but wind is, is, is sort of falling behind a little bit, perhaps. Um, what, what's going on there? I think you've got you've got issues around um, permitting planning. You've got that in a, in a lot of them in, in in all the technologies. But you've also got with wind that, uh, particularly for onshore wind, you have quite a lot of um, pushback or you know poor public perception of not wanting onshore wind in in their backyards or you know so offshore's easier from a public acceptance perspective. Not always easier from an actual development perspective um, more costly to do you know you've got it's further out so you've got the transmission issues uh, getting it on shore um, so it's kind of that whereas solar you, you've got a lot of growth in say residential rooftop solar much easier to install um, you know the public on board with that because they're doing that they can see the benefits to them um, and you've also got uh, with wind some policies that are restrictive. So UK onshore wind, Hungary, countries like that, Poland, uh, which did have quite a restrictive, very restrictive onshore wind and um, distance from residential that the turbines had to be. We've seen some progress there with that being reduced this year. So that's that's good news. But I think for wind, it's it's got slightly more difficult problems um, and, and challenges than from a solar perspective. Um, Maybe that it has also I, longer lead times, no? I mean, this yeah, whole infrastructure, the offshore. decisions, I yeah. guess it just takes twice as long. Yeah, and particularly for offshore. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, so all of it, there's, there's, you know, they're speeding up the solar, they're trying to get the permitting, the planning really short for solar. It's just slightly more difficult for from a wind um, perspective. Can you see the momentum, though, behind solar and wind as well can you see that momentum accelerating though uh, over the next sort of five six years you know, up to 2030 yeah i really do i think um well you've got the uk committed to 50 gigawatts by 2030 of offshore wind i know there have been issues with the recent auction and like you say yeah and they have reacted but will it be enough we'll wait and see uh, what happens in the auction coming up um italy they had similar problems last year with uh, the strike price for the wind auctions not being deemed high enough. But then they've just had a recent auction um, and it's gone up multiple times based on uh, compared to what they've ever done before. So positive notes coming out uh, from that. And also, like I said, some of the legislation around distance of web um, wind 
turbines from residential and from built-up areas, um, those are being tackled. So I do see uh, some positive. And you've got also in the EU the wind action plan. So you had the solar kind of package. There's now the wind one um, where they're really trying to address a lot of the problems around permitting, planning, investment in wind. And do you think that's in response to um, lawmakers and policy makers seeing uh, seeing a greater need for energy security and therefore perhaps they need to figure out a way to get over these sort of local hurdles uh, and the public becoming more uh, accepting of them again from an energy security point of view? Or is it simply uh, an economic decision? I think it's a combination of the two, but I think what's you know, we've got governments more and more realising that the renewables is the way they want to go. Renewables is the answer that's the solution. Um, and that, you know, solar is not going to do it by itself. There does need to be this combination. And also wind and solar are very co- complementary to each other um, from a seasonal power supply perspective and things like that. So I think there's just, there's both, there's like the investment side of it and also the policy side. And, and, genuine you know trying to help the like the the eu policy trying to help member states and and national governments to implement and to get the right policies and to actually um get the deployment rate and the implementation right a bit uh, following up on on the two previous questions and because i'm still impressed by dave when he was in the podcast last year and he correctly predicted wind and solar will over might overtake gas in europe the, the the year after which is what happened so why why is it not yet a no, complete no brainer that li- like we see people more and more see wind and solar but it's not yet decided yet so when do you think we will reach this point when it will be clear to everyone and there will be no investments anymore that go into another direction. Oh, that's a difficult one predicting when, when people are going to see the light, uh, the full light. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I think we are seeing, I think the kind of inevitability of, like I said, renewables being the way forward, um, that is being grasp more and more. Uh, I think it was a bit of a catalyst with the invasion of Ukraine, where people were like, these fossil fuels, they are not secure. Um, they are particularly volatile from a price perspective. We need to move away from that. So I think there has been that massive momentum and that massive impetus. Um, you're always going to get people who have traditionally um, made a lot of money out of fossil fuels, not necessarily want to let go of that particularly quickly or rapidly. And you're going to have that. And, and even though they may see the writings on the wall, they're going to want to make, you know, what do they say? Make hay while the sun shines. Like during the energy crisis, the massive windfall profits made, um, which were not necessarily then reinvested in renewables, which they probably should have been. Um, but I don't think that's because they don't know that's the direction of travel. I think it's more well, we need to take the opportunity now. Um, they're not going to let that go very easily. So what is, um, we talked about a lot of wind and solar on here, and then there's obviously the, there's a lot, lot of debate around so-called dunkelflaute, um and times when there's no wind and there's no sun. How does the EU battle those periods? Are those periods uh, still an important element that we need to tackle it from your point of view um and what is the role therefore for flexible loads or batteries to solve that sort of backup power that we need yeah what was quite interesting we found doing the data analysis for the report was the 
quite large increase in the number of hours that we're seeing where the system is moving away from relying on fossil fuels for all of that flexibility and the, the you know the system stability and is actually using renewables and more and more systems running 100% of the time on on renewables and for multiple days on renewables there's no denying that there will be periods as we go forward where as people love to say uh the wind won't blow and the sun won't shine. Don't say it. Yeah, <laughs> no. I know. It's awful, isn't it? But um, somewhere the wind will be blowing and the sun will be shining. And as I said, they can be very complementary to each other. Um, but I think, yeah, I think the hours, what we're seeing is the hours and the time periods where that's going to be a problem um, diminishing because you've got back the backup technologies such as batteries, sh- short duration batteries already, you know, being used quite widely, longer duration battery storage, and um, you know needing more development. But certainly, the investment is going in there, and the, the plans are going in there. But you will need a combination of um, system flexibility, demand side response, um, the storage, and also some low carbon dispatchable generation. Um, it's just that that will not be unabated fossil fuels, and it will only be for a very very small. Uh, number of hours in a year as we go forward. Yeah, I saw that causing quite a lot of interest on social media, that question on the back of your report, where I think first there was a summary graph where you see month by month, you know, how much is solar, how much is wind, uh, and and sort of making the point that you made, Sarah, that they complement each other. And then, of course, other people said, well, hang on, you know, you need to look at it on an hourly basis, not on a monthly basis. And then someone else, I can't recall his name, produced uh, hourly um, you know, granularity uh, with with that sort of analysis um, and showing that you know these periods of low wind and no sun are actually quite quite short, at least over the time horizon that that he had data for. Um, so it is an interesting question. Uh, you know, to what extent is this a really big problem? Uh, to what extent is it overblown? Um, but, you know, to what extent do we need you know long term storage? Uh, it's. I think the jury is still out, I guess, and we also have to plan for maybe extraordinary events, right? You might have data for 10 years and it all looks more or less fine. But then if you have one year where, uh, you know, one, one, one year in a hundred where it's really bad, you you, you need that um, you know, reliability in the system. So that will be an interesting one to track, I guess, um, in, in, also in your reports over the coming years, not just you know, how much is generated, but also these other resources, your battery storage, um, other forms of storage, especially long durational storage, perhaps even green hydrogen and things like that. Do you have any plans of sort of tracking those technologies as well in some way in the coming years? Yeah, I think so. So what we, you know, Ember has traditionally focused originally on how do we get off coal and onto clean and to renewable electricity and been deliberately very focused um, this is what we're going to tackle, and this, you know, uh, and and more and more as we're as we're winning that um, battle, particularly um, in in Europe, we've got to look at that broader energy system. Um, so you know, you've got increased electrification, you've got more electrified economy, and um, you need to start looking at that entire system from a balancing flexibility. Um, so yeah, we will, we we will the the. Some of the challenges you'll come across is that at the moment, data transparency 
which we rely upon for analysis, a lot of the data transparency around some of those new topics and those areas is not quite there. So we may spend a re- at first a lot of time drawing attention to the fact to policymakers and you know um, system operators that that you know if we're going to be able to highlight. Uh, problems and get over challenges, then we, we need to highlight where those data gaps are. Um, but then, yes, certainly going forward, we, we will be tracking that. And, and we do keep an eye on, you know, like um, the, 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 what people are saying around hydrogen, particularly in the power sector. Um, and is, you know, at what, what scale do, will it be needed? When will it be ready? Um, you know, these are all questions that we can't answer yet, but we really do want to answer. So we will be looking into that in the future. That sounds great, honestly, because when you were just before saying we see that more and more hours are filled with renewables, if you could then also underpin this, I think it would be amazing. Plus your usual general layout and style and messaging, I think it would be quite useful for the discussion. Um, since you said a broader picture, um, I was wondering if you had a look also at the recent uh, impact assessment of the European Commission for the 2040 target um, with regards to the shares of electrification, whether this strikes you as, as you know, about right. Uh, just to repeat, uh, I'm looking at my notes for 2030, depending on the scenario, they come up with a share of electrification and final energy demand 48 to 51% and then for 2050 it's 62%. Yeah, I think it was 20 was it 2040 they said 50%. Yeah, uh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what I thought. I don't think that would be that, that would be I think I think that's quite high anyway, but by 2030 that would be that would be uh, yeah, quite high. I mean from our perspective we think that's relatively ambitious. Um so I haven't got it's six hundred pages long. I think the entire impact. <laughs> yes, um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't read every piece of it, but from what we saw from it, relatively encouraged by the uh, you know the emissions reduction target of over ninety percent, the share of renewables there's going to be in that, and and I think from our first look at it. Uh, you know, yeah, in most scenarios, I think in the, all scenarios, it's around the 50% mark by 2040. Um, we thought that was quite reason- a quite reasonable um, assessment. Okay, interesting. Interesting. What were your thoughts on it? Well, I t- we also still dig to those pages. I, I just <laughs> remember one of, the, uh, one of our main comments was that the potential of electrification in industry was underestimated and, you know, then a lot of betting on CCS and hydrogen. So I kind of deduced from that that there could be even more electrification, but voila, not more sophisticated yeah. than that now. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. David here again. Thank you for tuning in to Foresight Climate and Energy. Remember, your engagement shapes our content. So share your thoughts and keep the conversation going on our new website and app. Not a member yet? You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29. Go to foresightmedia.com or follow the link in the show notes. Now, back to our conversation. Well, because that's interesting because obviously electricity demand fell this year, even though electrification is hopefully and obviously on the rise. Um, 
and that's the second in second year in a row electricity demand has fallen um, in, in in Europe. Is this a concern? Is the rate of electrification not fast enough? So therefore, the deployment of renewables is not fast enough. That's another barrier for solar, wind and solar. Uh, and is this a trend that's set to stay? Well, yeah. So we looked at the demand for, for 2023. So I think that was around 3.4% year on year. Uh, and then we we looked at it over the past two years as well, because we wanted to look at it from kind of energy crisis starting rather than just last year. Um, and it was 6.4% over the, the two years. Yeah. And we'd heard an awful lot of, I don't know, um, assumptions made that this meant that there was an industrial crisis and in the UK, in across Europe. And so it was quite interesting for us to look into how much of that demand for was actually based on industri- industrial consumption. And it was around just over a third um, for industrial consumption. There was weather. We had the second warmest year on record in Europe uh, last year. So that had played a part. And I think that 2022 was also uh, a mild but particularly a mild winter, mild year. So we had that part of it. And then you had the energy efficiency uh, playing at least a part of the rest of the fall because you had voluntary measures, but you also had emergency mandated measures. And then you had, yeah, uh, some people, some reasons related to, you know, the energy prices being so high that people were forced to take those actions for either industry or households, you know, reducing their consumption. But there were also, um, emergency measures brought in by governments in the EU to try and reduce power demand. You know, I said they tried to reduce gas demand, but there was also mandates around reducing uh, countries reducing their power demand. So I think some of that was kind of an emergency response. And interestingly, we've seen that in the last few months of 2023, demand was actually up. So what we're seeing is maybe that demand fall is stabilizing. We don't expect it to carry on with the same trajectory. And also interestingly, when we looked at actual industrial production for the EU, it was up 1% for 2023. So it was just that maybe the production was down for the more energy intensive industries, but overall production was actually up 1%. So the doom and gloom that that was sometimes thrown about around, um, you know, this terrible impact on on industry actually wasn't what we found when we looked into the data. Sarah, another um, issue that we haven't touched on yet is nuclear. Uh, Actually, last year was quite interesting from that perspective too. Um, I I think at least two things that might be worth touching on. One is that I think nuclear in France was back. We had um, issues with nuclear uh, I think it was in 2022 um, when we needed mm. it the most. We also had yes. a, a lack of nuclear uh, in France. Um, uh, and uh, at the same time, uh, Germany, I think last year, of course, phased out its last nuclear power plants and took them off the grid. And a lot of people before that happened suggested that this would bring back coal and would drive up emissions. Could you talk us through the story of nuclear perhaps in 2023 and how that has changed compared to previous years. Yeah, sure. So yeah, like you said, 2022 was a like unprecedentedly bad year for nuclear production. We had a huge amount of the French nuclear fleet, which makes up a lot of the nuclear generation in, in the EU. Uh, we had a lot of them out 
for repairs, unexpected maintenance. Um, and we did see uh, some quite encouraging recovery, not full recovery, but back to recovery. So nuclear generation was up around 2% on the year. Um, whereas the crash in 20, I can't remember the percentage of the crash in 2022 year on year, but it was, it was quite astounding. Um, and at the same time, we had hydro. So it was, it was uh, many factors impacting in 2022. So, yeah, there was a lot of talk with, so you had the French problem, but then you also have, as you said, Germany shutting down its last reactor in April 2023. And there was a lot of talk of how this would be, you know, fossil fuels, it would be a turn back to fossil fuels. So it was incredibly interesting to see that that didn't happen. So despite the fact that Germany had shut down its nuclear, it did not uh, roll back to relying on fossil fuels for that. And we saw the fall. Um, we saw Germany having uh, some really good results in uh, wind in particular, year on year. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I think what people were anticipating um, didn't, didn't eventuate. And then, of course, in 2022, because the French nuclear fleet was so poor, the performance was so poor, France became an importer of electricity for the first time in a long time. And uh, the UK became an exporter for the first time in, I think, four decades. And a lot of that uh, switched back. So you had France exporting again and and uh, and the UK importing and, and you saw those flows. So I think um, that's the thing with the EU. It's not always just about what's going on within the boundaries and the borders of that country because there's such great interconnection. Um, you can get those those flows. So we did see not a huge rebound in nuclear, but um, but two percent, and then hydro, which had also terrible year in twenty twenty two. I think that was up about fifteen percent. So it had quite a substantial recovery in twenty twenty three. I'm wondering whether you could give some explanation to the current very low ETS price, and whether you think that's a reason for concern because. Uh, uh, basically, it's it, it's it's more or less fallen by fifty percent in a year. It's down to fifty five euros at the moment. How do you explain this? I guess uh, you know stagnation still or economic stagnation, etc. But still, and uh, what do you make of it for your for your next electricity power report story? Yeah, yeah. Well, we do we do do an actual emissions uh, emissions only report uh, from the EU ETS. That comes out in like April or May after the official data comes comes out from there. We saw the carbon price hit the hundred euro mark uh, last year. Is it last year or twenty twenty two? Yeah, I think, year, it I think. last year. Yeah. Ago, yeah, and a big fanfare made of oh, this is it. It's broken through. <laughs> it's off. Um, but I think as well, you've got to remember that that may also have been a time where there was uh, expectations of you know, higher coal and fossil fuel generation. So therefore, the demand for the emissions and the allowances, the emissions allowances is higher. Now, we would expect with a fall off of fossil fuel generation, um, and like we said, there was a fall in industrial um, electricity consumption, not necessarily in, in industrial production, but in their electricity consumption, then you would expect to see this fall in the EU ETS price. So I don't think it's like a... It means that this, it isn't working. Um, I think we've seen, particularly in the UK, when they um, introduced their emissions trading scheme, it had a huge impact on the coal generation in the country, um, fossil fuel generation in the country. So 
yeah, I think maybe the 100 was hit because we were, we, you know, it was the energy crisis. There was a lot going on. There was a, 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 you know, an uptick in coal. There was a lot of talk about a coal comeback that never happened. Um, and then in 2023, we've seen that, as we've said, record collapse in fossil fuel generation. So from a power sector perspective, it's not that surprising that the um, EU ETS price has come down. And is it too low right now? Oh, there's a question. That's a bit like, how, how long is a piece of string? Is it too low? Too low for what? Um, I don't know. I don't know because it's it's obviously not encouraging more fossil fuel power generation. So um, it's still having an impact and it still makes fossil fuel generation and the cost of fossil fuel generation way above renewables. So it depends what you're, you're wanting it to do, but it's certainly isn't failing in that uh, at the moment. It's, but again, it's it's one element, isn't it? It's not, we can't just sit here and say the EU ETS price will do everything. And I don't think we expect that. And, and you sh- we shouldn't expect that. There's, there's other things going on. But the fact is that, yeah, wind and solar are much, much cheaper. So even with the EU, EU ETS price of, uh, you know, 55, 30. Um, so I don't think, I don't think we, I think too much might be put, too much attention might be putting on that, too much emphasis might be getting put on that um, by the people who it suits to put attention on that, if I may say that. We mentioned that wind had surpassed gas generation uh, last year. Do you see other um, forms of renewables reaching that sort of milestone uh, in, the, in the near future at all? Yeah, it depends. Yeah, I guess it depends what your definition of near future is there as well. But yeah, so we saw wind at like 18% of the share of generation and gas at 17%. If you look at solar, uh, um, it's around 9% still. So there's still quite, quite a gap in the, in that. But if you look at the policies of where wind and solar generation need to be as a share of, uh, generation going forward. So um, I think wind and solar are meant to make up around 55% by 2030. So obviously, if they're going to be making up 55% of the generation, then they are both going to have <laughs> very much surpassed uh, gas by then. Um, and you have hydro uh, at, I think it was roughly around 12, 13%. Um, so already quite close to gas. So as, as gas comes off further with more wind and solar coming on, you may see hydro. But you've got issues around hydro, the unpredictability of hydro with with climate change and impacts that we've seen. Um, you don't know. So soon, maybe, yeah, I mean, solar has got to go from 9, 9% rise rise uh, a little bit from there to, to overtake gas. But I think I think we will see it. We'll definitely see it before 2030. Yeah. But at what year sure. we see that between now and 2030, I can't quite specifically predict. And are there any uh, indications of maybe other clean energy? We've touched on nuclear, of course, but things like um, geothermal and wave and tidal power, are they going to make any kind of impact, do you see? Oh, it's not... Not, not necessarily my area of expertise because uh, we tend to focus more on the, the wind and solar, but I, I guess it'll depend on geography as well. So in some countries, geothermal, absolutely. Um, it's, it's not like it's a technology that you per se build in a country. It's like a, a lot of the time the country already has those resources. And so um, it's maybe harnessing those more in those locations than that there's going to be, there's going to be more um, 
more uh, demand for it or more ability to produce that. I mean, I only ask about those sort of technologies because um, the report highlights some of the lessons uh, learned from the risks of fossil fuel reliance. Um, So what lessons can be applied to shape future energy policies and ensure a more resilient and sustainable energy system? Yeah, so I think quite a few of the lessons were learned and acted upon relatively quickly. So from an EU perspective, the Repower EU, um, uh, increased solar and wind targets, increased renewable targets for 2030. Um, we are seeing that there is a response and there is an acceleration of policies in that, in that area. I think as well, hopefully people will see with not only coal falling, but gas falling that investment and policies around supporting gas infrastructure and, um, you know, seeing gas as a, some sort of transition solution is no longer viable and no longer really seen that way by by policymakers um, and also by investors. Um, and that renewables still continue to be cheaper, cleaner, less risky, less volatile. Um, but we've got to get the mechanisms right. So we've got to make sure that we keep that momentum and that the the ability to integrate the wind and solar at the rate that we need to integrate it into the system is enabled. So I think there's lessons there is that, yes, we're getting there. Yes, there's been amazing momentum. Yes, huge strides, but there's still work to be done. And there's still a lot of work to be done from a, it's great having targets, but let's make sure we're implementing it. Let's make sure those targets are transposed, particularly down to the member state and the national levels. and that those enablers of the clean power system, the enablers, grids, system flexibility, storage, demand side response, all of those things are enabled so that we can have that integration of of wind and solar at the rate that we need. Well, Germany just decided to build a new gigawatts of gas for the power sector. So they haven't, then they haven't drawn the lesson yet. You just... Well... I don't, Michaela, at least on a brighter note, it's gone down from 25 or whatever uh, was first suggested. I think they were going to build. At least it's it's 10 rather than 25 if we want to look on the a brighter note. Um, and and claims that it will be hydrogen ready by 2035. So the, later this year, we've got the uh, yeah European elections coming up later this year and, and as well as a number of national elections that we've touched on the, on previous episodes. If you could choose maybe three charts from this year's report, uh, from Ember to take into the office of the new European Commission or any of these new governments that are perhaps being uh, elected this year, which three would you take and why? Yeah, that's a tricky one. I would definitely take in the wind overtaking gas because I think that surprises people a bit. It also shows that it was um, the first year apart from COVID impact 2020 where wind overtook coal as well. So you've got that in that picture very clearly. Um, And a good news story for wind, because like I said, wind sometimes gets a bad press or is is seen as as a laggard. And like I've said, in some circumstances it is, but it's good to see a growth and a good news story um, around wind. Then the other one would probably be the, um, the hourly system flexibility chart, which was showing that that renewables are providing that flexibility more and more 
rather than fossil fuels, so for more hours. So it's really building that confidence in the clean power system um, and demonstrating it and doing it through data. So it's like, here it is, here's evidence. Um, And so there you've got the good news stories, which I think is important. But I think also taking in the chart that shows it's not going quite fast enough still. So yes, we've got the momentum. Yes, it's good news, but let's let's not sit on our laurels. Let's not say, okay, we're done. That's fine. We don't really need to work harder at this. Because um, like I said, again, that needs to be that taking it from targets to implementation on the ground and implementation at the national level. So I think that's what I would take in. If I could sneak a fourth one in, <laughs> I would also take the, the map that shows that... Um, that wind and solar are cheaper than fossil fuels. Mm. So because you've got some negative narratives around like the auction, the, the offshore wind auctions, and therefore renewables are getting really expensive and and it, and it just shows that uh, they are still way, way cheaper mm-hmm. than building new fossil you fuels. You mean their production uh, costs, generally. right? Yes, or exactly. not so, in combination with it, storage or maybe also not necessarily yeah, with like, the grid costs, it, right? Yes, it was like a new build. Uh, but even when you bring in the connection costs, if even when you look at the levelized cost of electricity, which is including, should include the connection costs, they're still way, way cheaper. But I just like the map that said, look, across Europe, it is cheaper, to, much mm. cheaper still uh, to build these technologies, not coal mm. and gas. And so what are the priorities then for these new governments uh, and the new commission uh, to come in? Yes. So I would say, like I've said a few times on this, implementation, implementation, um, removing barriers, challenges to add. So making sure, which which they've started to do so with the solar package, wind package, grids action plan, electricity market design reforms. Mm. It's definitely they're putting the structure in place to enable the system that we need to make even bigger strides forward. But it's got to be invested in and it's got to be um, implemented and transposed at the national level. And and national governments will need help mm. with this. Um, so while it's definitely moving in the right direction, let's make sure it keeps doing that. Let's make sure those key points that were brought, you know, why these packages were introduced, the challenges they were, they have been introduced to, to remove, um, you know, that that, that happens. And that it's facilitated as much as possible. Yeah. Um, so this is the second year that we've uh, delved into Ember's report. And yeah, last year, Dave Jones, your colleague, made some interesting predictions, some of which uh, did seem to turn out true. What are your predictions then for 2024, Sarah? And uh, when we come back to maybe revisit next year, that we can perhaps um, <laughs> see see how accurate you were or how accurate Ember <laughs> are. We can edit it. <laughs> um, yes. So uh, I think I mentioned some already, which is the, I don't predict the fall in demand. I think we will see a little uptick in demand in in 2024. Um, You've got, I think, industrial production should be up again a little bit more. You'll also have greater electrification um, across the board. Um, Coal will continue to decline. The report found that a fifth of the coal fleet, EU coal fleet, will be shutting down um, over the next two years. So that will some of that will definitely be happening in 2024. So I think we'll see that decline. Um, 
We've got wind and solar hitting 27% in 2023. So my prediction is they're going to hit a third. <laughs> they're going to take, make up a third share, just wind and solar on their own, I would say. Um, and then I do expect to see um, more uh, improvement in the nuclear generation as well for 2024 versus 2023. So we've seen we've seen that coming online, but I do expect more more recovery in the French fleet um, in 2024. Very good. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Really interesting little discussion there about the the data and uh, the insights from uh, Ember. Um, looking a little bit further into the future, one question we ask all of our guests on what matters is uh, if they could look into their crystal ball what are what are the what does the energy landscape look like in 10 to 20 years time 10 to 20 years time and, and yeah i'm not a big uh, forward looking in my personal life i don't like to plan more than about three months ahead so it's quite hard for me to look ahead but in work i obviously am all the time looking at 2030 2035 uh trying to decipher people's plans and targets and where we might be um yeah, so, uh, well, I guess something I was reading about was um, nuclear fusion, breakthroughs in nuclear fusion mm, that yes. happened, I think, not last I week, the that. week before in the in the lab in the UK. So I think if I looked at uh, further ahead, I think they were saying it's a long way off being, you know, something that can really contribute, but maybe in 20 years' time, there's going to be those developments. Um, that would be quite mm-hmm. exciting. Um as well, a, a really big shift away from uh, gas in particular, from like not just from power sector, but from the heating sector. So that broader electrification uh, in transport, but also in heat. Um, so, you know, you've got targets for no new boilers. I think in the UK it was supposed to be 2030, mm-hmm. but uh, Rishi Sunak rolled it back to 2035, but Labour might bring that back to 2030 if they get in. So I think real progress in that electrification of heating as well from an energy perspective um, will be really, really important. And I think we'll have made huge steps in 10 to 10 years' time. Absolutely. I think so too. I'm definitely interested about fusion as well. I saw that headline uh, last yeah. week. Before we go then, uh, quickly go around the table to see what caught my eye in the last sort of 10, 10 days, week to 10 days. Uh, Jan, did you see anything uh, on, on your did. rambles around the Cotswolds? I, I, I did. Uh, it's a piece in the Financial Times uh, reporting that uh, a big investor in the gas networks in the UK is uh, cutting its stake in the gas networks. Um, so I thought that was interesting because, of course, we – talk about stranded assets and the decline of gas use. I think we talked about this on this program before. Um, so that could be the first sign of investors getting cold feet moving away from gas networks. Very interesting. We will be following that closely at Foresight Climate and Energy. Sarah, what caught your eye? Yeah, not necessarily energy no, related. I've talked about energy quite a lot now. So. <laughs> um, and it's not really very chirpy mm-hmm. either. Um, because I got this uh, stat from the, our report that one-fifth of coal plants are going to shut down between uh, now and, and the end of 2025, um, I then what caught my eye was a, a rather distressing article that said that one-fifth of migratory species um, are at risk of extinction. Um, they've done the UN, I think it was UN did its first ever study, migratory species study. Um, and it came out, and this is what they were saying, due to, you know, like human encroachment and climate change. Um, and that really caught my eye. But on a mm. bright note, they did say there is a lot we can do 
to stop this from happening. Um, but like anything, we need to act now and it needs a change in, uh, in human behavior, where we build things, how we're encroaching and obviously stopping Absolutely. <laughs> the climate yes. change is also a huge thing in that. So that, that caught Very my interesting. eye. Michaela, what caught your eye? Yeah, I read an opinion piece by Janet Ranganathan from the World Resources Institute. And she she was very upbeat about 2024 becoming the year of uh, mandatory climate disclosure and reports that a lot of companies now have to do because a few laws enter into force, like was in the US, in the EU, in Cal- specifically in California. Um, and then it, she basically said about half of the world's economy is now covered with such obligations to do this kind of reporting. Hmm. Uh, it's a first step. And I think at one point we'll have to cover that also in our podcast and see what actually is done based mm-hmm. on this reporting, if it actually changes something, right? Mm. But I thought it was interesting as fact. Absolutely. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, um, for me, uh, what caught my eye was uh, the UK's main opposition party, the Labour Party, uh, announcing its intention to reduce its uh, £28 billion green investment pledge to less than £15 billion pounds, uh, if elected later this year. Um, the cynic in me always thought that this might happen. It was quite a big pledge to begin with, and it becomes another stick for Labour to whack the Tory party with, not that it needs any more of those. Uh, but it also just becomes another example of cross-party apathy towards the energy transition, um, which we see throughout Westminster and Whitehall at the moment. Um, so really disappointing to see that um, in the UK, uh, which I guess we, you know, I was always claimed to be a leader on energy transition, uh, but never really follows that lead uh, very well. Um that's all of our time. Uh, my thanks go to Sarah, Michaela, Jan, and our producer, Kira, uh, as well as our audio editor, Robert. If you have any questions for the team or wish to add to the conversation, why not join us on our website or app? Visit foresightmedia.com or follow the link in the show notes to get a one-month free trial with full access to the site and let us know your predictions for the year ahead. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.